This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. And somebody handed me a helmet and a riot stick and said, come on, we're going in the yard and get this thing back under control. And I can remember running down the stairs here thinking, this is really stupid. I could get killed out here, you know. You know, it was one of those feelings that somebody's getting ready to take a shot at you or something. You know, it was just a scary, scary feeling. And in fact, the inmate that started the fire uh, in the kitchen, I could see his hand through the window. It was dark at night, but I could see his hand. It was his left hand. He had a piece of paper that was on fire, and I could see him hold it out and drop it. They never intentionally set the chapel on fire. It was the heat from the kitchen. When I was sitting on that wrestling mat with the body under my feet, and I was eating that sandwich and drinking this red Kool-Aid when the Ada County detectives came in and said, doesn't this bother you? And I said, I guess not. I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Behind Gray Walls Disturbing Justice Edition. Uh, this season's all about the prison uprisings and riots that occurred here, and this is our last episode of the normal season. My name is Anthony, and I'm talking to Sky down in Texas. How you doing, Sky? Hello. I'm good. I am good. You know, it's the temperature has been fairly bearable uh, as of recent weeks. We had a, I think, a high of 49 last week, and then but today's up to 79. So we are back in Texas fall. Um, but I'm excited to come home for a little bit. School's all online, so why not come home? Yeah. And uh, be home for Thanksgiving and for fall and for sort of early snow that I think we're supposed to be getting. Yeah. Well, we're excited to have you back in Idaho, Sky. Yeah. Well, should we uh, should we get started in 1973? Yeah, let's do awesome. it. Sources today, Inmate Files, Ancestry.com, Idaho Daily Statesman articles, Vietnam War, End of Conflict by Kennedy Hickman on ThoughtCo.com. Watergate.info, Haig Tells of Theories on Erasure by George Lardner Jr. on WashingtonPost.com, AIMMovement.org, Wounded Knee Occupation of 1973 on BlackHillsKnowledgeNetwork.org, Occupy Wounded Knee, A 71-Day Siege and a Forgotten Civil Rights Movement by Emily Chertoff for The Atlantic, The History of the American Indian Movement from ThoughtCo.com, we Shall Remain on PBS.org, which is a video series. Tidal Wave, How Women Changed America at Century's End by Sarah M. Evans. Roe v. Wade, 1973 at the Legal Information Institute from Cornell Law School. Battle of the Sexes at BillieJeanKing.com. A PBS documentary titled Makers, The Women Who Made America. History.com articles on the Watergate scandal, Wounded Knee, and Roe v. Wade. And lastly, Wikipedia articles on the timeline of the Watergate scandal, the Paris Peace Accords, the American Indian Movement, Wounded Knee, Treaty of Fort Laramie, 1868, Second Wave Feminism, Battle of the Sexes, and Billie Jean King. So we are touching on some very crucial and, in my opinion, exciting things in this whole episode, but especially sort of in the U.S. overview. The year is 1973, and we are just two years removed from our last riot and overview of the United States. That means that when many of the things that we discussed in our 71 episode are still happening. Nixon had easily defeated George McGovern in the 1972 election and was just entering his second term. Long-term competition between democracy and communists remained, including the Cold War and the space race. 
Space Race was, for all intents and purposes, over, especially after the moon landing in 1969, but the United States was still launching space probes and Skylab, the United States' first space station. The Cold War was essentially at a standstill, and the other major conflict between democracy and communists, the Vietnam War, was about to come to an end. The 1972 Easter Offensive, a communist-backed North Vietnamese attack designed to destroy elements of the ARVN, the South Vietnamese Army, and possibly replace the South Vietnam president, had failed. The North Vietnamese leader, Le Duc Tho, realized that after the Easter Offensive failure, North Vietnam was losing bargaining power in the peace talks, and agreed that the South Vietnamese government could remain in power while negotiations moved forward. Nixon's National Security Advisor, Henry Kissinger, took took advantage of Le Duc Tho's change of mind and commenced secret talks with the North Vietnamese leader. Ten days later, the draft of a peace document was announced. The South Vietnamese president, Guyan Dan Tao, upset at being completely left out of negotiations, demanded major alterations to the document and spoke out against the proposed peace. In response, North Vietnamese published the details of the agreement and negotiations stalled. His pride and vanity hurt, Nixon, feeling like Hanoi tried to embarrass him and force the United States back to the negotiating table, demanded bombings of Hanoi and Haiphong in December 1972. On January 15, 1973, Nixon pressured South Vietnam to accept the current peace deal and was thus able to announce the end of the offensive operations in North Vietnam. The Paris Peace Accords, which officially ended the Vietnam War, were signed on January 27, 1973. Some of the terms included complete withdrawal of U.S. and Allied forces within 60 days, the return of prisoners of war, a ceasefire in South Vietnam, followed by precise delineations of communist and government zones of control, a ban on further military personnel into South Vietnam, and U.S. financial contributions to, quote, healing the wounds of war, unquote, throughout Indochina, amongst five other conditions. On February 11th, the first American prisoners of war were released from Vietnam, and the very last U.S. soldier was pulled out of Vietnam by March 29, 1973. The American involvement in the Vietnam War officially ended. 58,119 Americans were killed in action, with another 153,000 wounded and nearly 2,000 missing in action. 230,000 South Vietnamese were killed, while the North Vietnamese Army and the Viet Cong had combined casualty figures of 1.1 million. It is estimated that between 2 million and 4 million Vietnamese civilians were killed during a war that no one really won. After the withdrawal of U.S. and Allied troops, South Vietnam was left to defend itself. Despite the fact that the Paris Peace Accords were in place, fighting between the North and South Vietnamese armies continued for another two years. North Vietnamese troops seized Saigon on April 30, 1975. South Vietnamese surrendered that same day. After 30 years of conflict, Ho Chi Minh's vision of a united communist Vietnam was realized. While President Nixon ended the Vietnam War, he was embroiled in what is probably the biggest presidential scandal in United States history, Watergate. Watergate started a year earlier on June 17, 1972, when seven burglars were caught breaking into the Democratic National Committee building in the Watergate complex in Washington, D.C. In August... 1972, Richard Nixon gave a speech where he vehemently denied that these burglars were part of his staff. Most Americans believed him, and he was elected in a landslide victory in November 1972. He was sworn in as president on January 20, 1973. 
This would probably be his greatest day of the year, as 1973 saw a ramping up in, of investigations into the burglaries as it related to Richard Nixon's re-election campaign. It was learned that only a few days after the break-in, Nixon had given the burglars hundreds of thousands of dollars of, quote, hush money, unquote, and that he hired the CIA to impede the FBI's investigation of the crime. On January 8, 1973, the trial of the Watergate 7 began in Washington, D.C., presided over by Judge... John Sirica. By January 15th, five of the seven pleaded guilty to conspiracy, burglary, and wiretapping. The remaining two, G. Gordon Liddy and James W. McCord Jr., two former Nixon aides, had pleaded not guilty, but were convicted on January 30th. About two months later, in mid-March, McCord Jr. wrote a letter to Judge Sirica in which he claimed that the defendants pleaded guilty under duress. He stated they committed perjury, lying at the urging of John Dean, counsel to the president, and John Mitchell, the former attorney general. Others were involved in the burglary besides the Watergate 7, he said, and John Mitchell was the, quote, overall boss, end quote, of the operation. The allegations of cover-up and obstruction of justice in the highest law of the land blew the Watergate scandal wide open. After McCord's letter, John Dean, the White House counsel, began cooperating with the Watergate prosecutors. On April 17th, an official statement from the White House claimed that Nixon had no prior knowledge of the Watergate affair. By the end of the month, in an attempt to distance himself even further from the scandal, Nixon appeared on national television and dismissed John Dean and accepted the resignations of two of his, quote, closest advisors, end quote, H.R. Haldeman and John Ehrlichman, along with Attorney General Richard Kleindienst. Nixon replaced Kleindienst with Elliot Richardson. On May 18th, the Watergate Committee began its nationally televised hearings. From this point on, another major reveal would come nearly every month for the next 15 months. On June 3, 1973, journalists Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein of the Washington Post, with the help of the anonymous source who went by the name Deep Throat, reported that John Dean told investigators that he had discussed the Watergate cover-up at least 35 times. A handful of aides, led by former presidential appointments, Secretary Alexander P. Butterfield, testified before grand jury that Nixon had secretly taped every conversation in the Oval Office, and if prosecutors could get their hands on the tapes, they could have proof of the president's guilt. Despite Nixon's attempts to deny the committee access to presidential documents throughout July, including ignoring subpoenas from the Watergate and Senate committees, Judge Sirica ordered that Nixon hand over nine tapes for Sirica to review in private. On August 15th, Nixon had delivered a second address to the nation, claiming executive privileges and that he should not have to turn the tapes over. On October 12th, the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals upheld Judge Sirica's ruling that Nixon surrender tape recordings relevant to Watergate. As if Nixon didn't have enough to worry about, his vice president, Spiro T. Agnew, resigned after pleading no contest to a charge of income tax evasion. He was sentenced to three years probation and a $10,000 fine. On October 12th, the same day that the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals demanded that Nixon turn over Watergate tapes, Nixon nominated Gerald Ford, Republic minority leader in the House of Representatives, as his new standing vice president. Ford was confirmed by the Senate on November 27, 1973. On October 19th, Nixon tried to offer a compromise if he was forced to turn over the tapes, proposing that Democratic Senator from Mississippi, John Stennis, be allowed to listen to the tapes and prepare summaries for Special Prosecutor Archibald Cox. The next day, Cox refused the Stennis compromise, sending Nixon into an absolute rage and leading to what is now known as the Saturday Night Massacre. First, 
Nixon ordered Attorney General Elliot Richardson to fire Cox. Richardson refused and resigned in protest. Next, he ordered the Deputy Attorney General William Ruckelshaus to fire Cox. Next, he ordered the Deputy Attorney General William Ruckelshaus to fire Cox. Ruckelshaus refused and was fired. Finally, Robert Bork, the Solicitor General acting as Attorney General, fired Cox. Under immense pressure, Nixon released some, but not all of the tapes, on October 23rd. Archibald Cox was replaced as Watergate Special Prosecutor by Leon Jaworski. With calls coming in for Nixon's impeachment after his refusal to hand over the tapes and the Saturday Night Massacre, Nixon tried to take to the press to clear his name. During a press conference on November 17th, he defended his action and urged the nation to put Watergate behind them, delivering his famous I am not a crook statement. I made a lot of money. I made $250,000 from a book and the serial rights, which many of you were good enough to purchase also. In the practice of law, and I'm not claiming I was worth it, but apparently former vice presidents or presidents are worth a great deal to law firms, and I did work pretty hard. But in also in that period, I earned between $100,000 and $250,000 every year. So that when I, in 1968, decided to become a candidate for president, I decided to clean the decks and to put everything in real estate. I sold all my stock for $300,000. That's all I owe. I sold my apartment in New York for $300,000. I'm using rough figures here. And I had $100,000 coming to me from the law firm. And so that's where the money came from. Let me just say this. And I want to say this to the television audience. I made my mistakes. But in all of my years of public life, I have never profited, never profited from public service. I've earned every cent. And in all of my years of public life, I have never obstructed justice. And I think, too, that I can say that in my years of public life, that I welcome this kind of examination because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. Despite his best efforts, the Watergate committee continued to uncover more and more incriminating evidence against President Nixon. Four days after delivering his I am not a crook statement, a gap of 18 and a half minutes is discovered on the tape of a conversation between Nixon and Haldeman on June 20th, 1972. Electronic experts declared the gap is the result of at least five separate erasers. Nixon secretary Rosemary Woods deny deliberately erasing the tape, saying if she accidentally erased parts of the tape, it would have caused no more than a five-minute gap when she accidentally pushed the wrong button on a recording machine in her office during a short phone call. White House Chief of Staff Alexander Haig said one theory was that, quote, some sinister force, end quote, erased the 18-and-a-half-minute tape. Quote, perhaps there had been one tone applied by Miss Woods, and then perhaps some sinister force had come in and applied the other energy source and taken care of the information on that tape, end quote. In response, Judge Sirica asked Haig, quote, has anyone ever suggested who that sinister force might be? No, Your Honor, Haig replied. Haig continued to believe that Rosemary Woods was the cause of the gap, saying, quote, I've known women who think they've talked for five minutes and men have talked for an hour, end quote. President Nixon had other things to worry about besides Watergate, Higgs said. The discovery of the gap in the tapes was the last major Watergate scandal event of 1973. 
All of it would culminate in Nixon's resignation on August 8, 1974, before Congress had a chance to complete articles of impeachment against him. He, he is the only president in the history of the United States to resign from office and, if articles of impeachment had been completed, would have been the second president in U.S. history to have been impeached. Therefore, I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Vice President Ford will be sworn in as president at that hour in this office. As the U.S. government was trying to keep itself intact, Native Americans were trying to get the U.S. government to recognize indigenous tribal issues. 1973 marked the occupation of Wounded Knee by members of the American Indian Movement, or AIM. Originally intended as a peaceful demonstration for Lakota rights, AIM members staged protests dealing with corruption in the Bureau of Indian Affairs and the town of Wounded Knee on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota. Eighty-three years previous, in 1890, Wounded Knee was the site of a major clash between the Lakota and the United States Army, an event considered the end of the Indian Wars in the West, where U.S. soldiers killed 150 Sioux men, women, and children. The American Indian Movement formally began in 1968 in Minneapolis, Minnesota, amid rising concerns of police brutality, racism, and about treaties broken by the U.S. government. Soon, AIM was fighting for tribal sovereignty, restoration of Native lands, preservation of indigenous cultures, and education and health care for Native Americans. According to aimmovement.org, quote, the movement was founded to turn the attention of Indian people toward a renewal of spirituality which would impart the strength of resolve needed to reverse the ruinous policies of the United States, Canada, and other colonialist governments of Central and South America. At the heart of AIM is deep spirituality and a belief in the connectedness of all Indian people, unquote. In its early days, AIM occupied abandoned property at a Minneapolis naval station to bring attention to the educational needs of Native youth. In 1969, they, along with other Native American grassroots groups, occupied Alcatraz Island, protesting federal policies related to Native Americans, including the Bureau of Indian Affairs' Indian Termination Policy, designed to force assimilation of Native Americans into mainstream American society. In 1972, AIM brought Native Nation representatives to Washington, D.C., putting a 20-point proposal in front of President Richard Nixon that demanded a new relationship of honesty and trust between the U.S. government and Native tribes. Some of their points included restoration of treaty-making, establishment of a treaty commission to make new treaties with sovereign Native nations, Indian leaders to address Congress, all Indians to be governed by treaty relations, recognition of the right of Indians to interpret treaties, restoration of terminated rights, abolishment of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, creation of a new office of federal Indian affairs, Native nations to be immune to commerce regulations, taxes, trade restrictions of states, Indian religious freedom and cultural integrity protected. Reclaim and affirm health, housing, employment, economic development, and education for all Indian people. This march thrust the American Indian movement into the spotlight, building momentum for the occupation of Wounded Knee on February 27, 1973. Leading up to the Wounded Knee occupation, members of the Pine Ridge Reservation were divided along political and cultural lines after AIM came into the reservation to bring attention to the murder of a Sioux tribal member named Yellow Thunder. Though the six white attackers received only six-year sentences, AIM received a great deal of respect on the reservation. This growing influence on the reservation began to threaten the conservative Sioux tribal chairman, Dick Wilson, who supposedly favored mixed-race assimilated members like himself over tribal members who live more traditional lifestyles for positions in the tribal government. 
When attempts to impeach Wilson failed, AIM threatened force to remove him. When he learned that AIM was planning a protest, Wilson fled to tribal headquarters at the town of Pine Ridge, where he was protected by the Bureau of Indian Affairs Police. Rather than confront police at Pine Ridge, 200 AIM members, declaring themselves representatives of the Oglala Sioux Nation, took to protesting at the symbolic town of Wounded Knee. Ethleen Ironcloud, Two Dogs, a tribal member, gave an oral history of her experience of the event, saying, quote, From what I understood at the time, there were many people passionate about making a dramatic stand at Wounded Knee that would highlight everything we as Oglala Lakota and generally indigenous people everywhere were suffering with and fighting against, end quote. Those protesting at Wounded Knee wanted recognition of the Fort Laramie Treaty of 1868, which had promised lands that had since illegally been taken by the U.S. government, the removal of the current tribal council, and new elections. AIM members arrived in the town on the night of February 27, 1973, in a caravan of cars and trucks and took the town's residents hostage. Within hours, police surrounded the town, forming a blockade of any supplies or people getting in or out. Federal marshals and the National Guard fired on occupiers daily and cut off electricity and water to the town to break the siege. When Bill Zimmerman, a sympathetic activist and pilot from Boston, agreed to make a 2,000-pound supply drop on the 50th day of the siege, agents opened fire on them. The first casualty, Frank Clearwater, a Cherokee, was killed when a bullet struck him through a church wall on April 17th. In a PBS series entitled, We Shall Remain, which you can find at pbs.org, a former member of Ames said, quote, They were shooting machine gun fire at us, tracers coming at us at nighttime, just like a war zone. We had some Vietnam vets with us, and they said, Man, this is just like Vietnam, end quote. Nine days later, on April 26th, Lawrence Buddy Lamont was shot by a government sniper. This death proved to be the turning point in the occupation. As many Oglala sued New Lamont and his mother, they asked the AIM leadership to end the siege, even as AIM members fought to keep the occupation going. From that point, negotiations between the federal officials and protesters began in earnest. The militants surrendered on May 8, 1973, after 71 days of occupation. During the siege, two Native Americans had been killed, at least 15 were wounded, and one federal agent had been paralyzed by a bullet. Negotiations ended with 237 arrests and the arraignments of AIM leaders Russell Means and Dennis Banks. Nearly all the arrests ended in acquittal after evidence was mishandled. Unfortunately, conditions and corruption on the Pine Ridge Reservation remained unchanged. Though the 1973 occupation at Wounded Knee is an important event in the Native American Civil Rights Movement, the work of the movement remains unfinished. As Idaho is a central location for many Native American tribes, the Wounded Knee occupation, which was occurring around the same time as the riot at the Old Pen, which we'll detail here in just a few minutes, elicited a lot of opinions from Idaho residents. On March 16th, the Idaho Daily Statesman published a letter to the editor from S. Samuelson of Boise, which demonstrated the vitriol and misunderstandings that some citizens had regarding Native Americans. Quote, it is to be wondered about our progressive civil rights leaders and supporters. They have literally progressed us so far that we are back fighting the Indians again. The Indians, though, really do have a lot of honest grievances. They live on tax-free land and are totally deprived of joining the American mainstream of paying on land that they already own. They get free medical care, which keeps them from enjoying $40 a month Blue Cross payments. 
Then, the dirty white people give them free schooling from grade school through college, totally depriving them from having to work to put themselves through school or even having their parents work to put them through school. Then the dirty white people give them free housing, free food, and free money. It's not surprising to me that they could not tolerate this any longer and are now throwing lead at Wounded Knee. Why not integrate the Indians? Give the Indians a free and simple title to the Indian land to use, sell, or give away, and let them have an equal break with everyone else in this country. Let's say, okay, you're a full-fledged American and just as good and just as smart as any other American. Go pay your taxes and take your chances just like the rest of us have been doing for 200 years. If we did that, perhaps they would really be better off. In fact, I'm sure of it. End quote. This letter drew many responses from fellow citizens. Mary L. Brown of Caldwell wrote a more polite reply about two weeks later, saying, quote, In giving such a wrong impression of today's Indians, Mr. Samuelson shows very clearly that he has little knowledge of the whole Indian situation. His idea of integrating the Indians was tried during the Eisenhower administration, with tragic results. Yes, we pay for their education, just as we do our own children, but very, very few Indians continue into college, as most do not have the means, and the great majority drop out while in junior high due to discrimination, no proper clothes, etc. The Bureau of Indian Affairs educational system has been a farce. The Indians at Wounded Knee want to be peaceful in their demands for a few simple rights which we have simply by being white, but they have had to make a big noise in order to gain attention. Indians have tried peaceful methods for 200 years and nobody listened. Even now, the government refuses to depose Dick Wilson, and until yesterday refused to send an Indian Affairs official to negotiate. It would all be so simple if we would only listen and be a little more understanding. Mr. Samuelson, why don't you visit a reservation and get to know a few Indians and learn how they live and feel and under what conditions they live, all of which you know so little. End quote. A few days before Mary Caldwell penned her opinion on March 29, 1973, a member of the Idaho Daily Statesman editorial board wrote an opinion column stating that, quote, the Indian occupation of Wounded Knee and the armed confrontation with government forces have served the purpose of the Indians. They have helped draw attention to Indian grievances and complaints, end quote. The writer went on to note that it was a major danger and risk for the Indians to continue their occupation, saying, quote, Continued occupation of wounded knee heightens the possibility of further bloodshed without adding to the Indian cost, end quote. Though it was more eloquently stated than Mr. Samuelson's editorial, it nonetheless continued to dismiss the grievances of Native Americans. On March 4th, a young college student named Mary Linda Jordan wrote in, saying, quote, Last week I read the letter about freeloading dirty Indians by the ignorant Mr. Samuelson. During the past week, I have read replies by intelligent, informed, educated Indians. Tonight, I read the statesman editorial, Indians Have Made Point. I can remain silent no longer. The statesman says that, Quote, continuing the bloodshed is a serious gamble, end quote. The Native American began this serious gamble by failing to have strict immigration laws and letting the white man into this country in the first place. The Indians aren't afraid of bloodshed. Look at how much of it has been spilled already in fighting for this land which belongs to him. One thing the Indian is not is a coward. He has fought insurmountable odds for more than a hundred years defending his homeland against guns and howitzers. If the Indian had had more than bows and arrows, there wouldn't be any white people here. The demands that have been made by the people occupying Wounded Knee aren't out of line. They want Dickie Wilson, tribal chairman, ousted. They want a separate cabinet post for Indian affairs. They want their treaty rights recognized and fulfilled. They want the right to their own lives in their own lands without being told by white bureaucrats what they can and cannot do. 
Most do not want to be integrated into the mainstream of white society that teaches them to cheat, be selfish, and wishes to destroy their tribal identity. Is that really too much to ask? You're wrong, statesman editor. So long as the federal government refuses to recognize these demands, so long as letters from the likes of Mr. Samuelson are written, and so long as editorials such as yours are printed, the Indians have not made their point. We will, though. We will. End quote. Mary Jordan signed her letter. I apologize if I say this wrong. I will say this wrong. She signed her letter, quote, Member Tamman Sokopa Indian Club, Boise State College, end quote. Even if Wounded Knee was several states away, the issues that affected the Sioux in South Dakota affected natives around the country. The American Indian movement was a crucial movement towards getting rights for oppressed Native Americans in the country. But the 1970s was an important decade for another civil and political rights movement, the women's rights movement. 1963 and the publishing of Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique is widely accepted as the main starting point of what has since been dubbed second-wave feminism, a movement towards women gaining greater political and social equality outside of the home. The second-wave feminist movement embodied the phrase, quote, the personal is political, end quote, meaning that many aspects of women's personal lives were being brought to the political forefront. In 1973, one of those personal rights that was up for political debate was the right to women's autonomy over their own body in the court case of Roe v. Wade. According to Sarah M. Evans' tidal wave, in September 1969, a young lawyer from Texas named Sarah Weddington was sitting at a fundraising event for a group who gave safe abortion references to young women who needed them. At the event, Weddington and other members of the group began discussing the legal risk of what they were doing, and she volunteered to do some legal research. She soon learned that outside of Texas, where abortions were illegal even in cases of rape and incest and legal only to save a woman's life, there were, quote, judicial and legislative precedents that offered reasons for hope, end quote. That same year, Norma McCorvey, a Texas woman, wanted to terminate an unwanted pregnancy. As she had had two previous pregnancies, she gave up for adoption because of the impoverished circumstances in which she lived. After unsuccessfully attempting to obtain an illegal abortion, McCorvey was referred to Sarah Weddington and fellow lawyer Linda Coffey. They took up her case, naming her Jane Roe, in court documents. A year later in 1970, Weddington and Coffey filed a lawsuit against Henry Wade, Dallas County District Attorney, on behalf of McCorvey and all other women, quote, who were or might become pregnant and want to consider all options, end quote. Before the case was argued, McCorvey gave birth and put the baby up for adoption. In June 1970, a Texas judge ruled that the state's abortion ban was illegal because it violated the constitutional right to privacy found in the Ninth Amendment. Wade declared that he would continue to prosecute doctors who performed abortions, and he appealed the decision to the U.S. Supreme Court that same year, though the court decided to take two other court cases dealing with abortion before Roe v. Wade. Opening arguments on Roe v. Wade opened on December 13, 1971, with Sarah Weddington remaining the lead attorney for McCorvey and attorney Jay Floyd arguing the case for Texas. Arguing the case against Weddington and another female attorney, Floyd opened his case saying, quote, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, it's an old joke, but when a man argues against two beautiful ladies like this, they are going to have the last word, end quote. No one laughed. Oh, Lord. I know. One, no one laughed, and one observer thought that Chief Justice Warren Burger, quote, was going to come right off the bench at him. He glared him down, <laughs> end quote. This statement has since been described as the worst joke in legal history. 
(laughs) (laughs) After the first round of arguments, all seven justices agreed that the Texas law should be struck down, but could not agree on what legal grounds. In May 1972, Justice Harry Blackman proposed that the case be re-argued, which it was, on October 11, 1972. Weddington continued to represent Roe, and Texas Assistant Attorney General Robert C. Flowers replaced J. Floyd. Finally, on January 22, 1973, the Supreme Court issued a 7-2 decision in favor of Jane Roe, recognizing the fundamental right of a woman to decide whether or not to terminate her pregnancy, applying the right to privacy to a woman's decisional autonomy and physical consequences. The decision, written by Justice Blackmun, stated, quote, This right of privacy, whether it be founded in the 14th Amendment's concept of personal liberty and restrictions upon the state action, as we feel it is, or in the 9th Amendment's reservation of rights to the people, is broad enough to encompass a woman's decision whether or not to terminate her pregnancy, end quote. They stated abortion could infringe on a woman's rights to privacy for several reasons, including that unwanted children may cause distress for the future, it may bring imminent psychological harm, as caring for the child may tax the mother's physical and mental health, and there may be, quote, distress for all concerned associated with the unwanted child. The court divided the pregnancy into three trimesters, saying that the decision to terminate the pregnancy during the first trimester, when the fetus was not yet viable, was solely at the discretion of the woman. During the second trimester, the state could regulate, but not outlaw, abortions in the interest of the mother's health. After the second trimester, the fetus became viable, and the state could then regulate or outlaw abortions in the interest of the fetus, except when necessary to preserve health or life of the mother. Neither Texas nor any other state had the right to prevent women from obtaining abortions in their first trimester like Norma McCorvey had been. This decision was issued with another similar case, Doe v. Bolton, that involved a similar challenge to Georgia state laws. As a result of the Roe v. Wade ruling, 46 states needed to change their abortion laws. The case has been cited as precedent in a number of cases, including most recently in 2016. It was even used by the Canadian Supreme Court when deciding Canada's federal law regarding access to abortions in 1988. Which I did not know that the trimester thing came about because of this ruling, which it makes sense that they had to be able to to sort of name like this is the cutoff point that, you know, X thing is allowed or not allowed. Um, But just to think that we've used that for so long, sort of, I mean, like, you know, like I've always known women's pregnancies as trimesters, but like I've been watching a lot of Call the Midwife recently um, and, you know, that takes place in London in the 50s and they never talk about trimesters. Like they just say like, oh, we think that you maybe have like this many weeks left. Like that wasn't a a vocabulary word for them. Um, So I thought that was a really interesting little fact. That is super interesting. I Yeah, I didn't realize that either. Huh. Though the women's rights movement covers serious things like reproductive rights, gender equality, and legal equality, women's rights were advanced outside of the legal courts as well. On September 20, 1973, Billie Jean King faced Bobby Riggs in the Houston Astrodome in a primetime television tennis match to prove that women could play sports as well as men and that female tennis players deserve equal prize money in comparable tournaments. It would be one of the most watched televised sports events of all time, and no tennis match before or since has been seen by so many people. 
Leading up to the match, Bobby Riggs was the number one tennis champion in the 1930s and 1940s. In 1973, he was a 55-year-old man who claimed the women's game was so inferior to the men's game that he, even at his age, could beat the top female players, saying, quote, girls play a nice game of tennis for girls, unquote. He challenged Billie Jean King, the number one women's player who, in 1973, had eight U.S. Open championships, 17 Wimbledon championships, four French Open championships, and two Australian Open championships in single women's doubles and mixed doubles tournaments. She had also won the Federation Cup, a team competition, three times leading up to 1973. King refused Bobby Riggs' challenge, not wanting to stoop to his level, and encouraged what he himself deemed chauvinist behavior. When King turned down the first challenge, Riggs played Margaret Court, another top women's player, but he easily defeated her in two sets. After Court's defeat in May 1973, Billie Jean King realized she would have to accept the challenge and agreed to play him, quote, to disprove his baseless assertions, end quote. It was one of the most highly publicized nationally televised matches, with ABC dubbing it the, quote, battle of the sexes, end quote. It offered a cash prize of $100,000, earning a primetime spot. When asked about the game, Billie Jean King stated, quote, I'm taking this match very seriously. I love to win. I welcome the responsibility and pressure. Bobby had better be ready, end quote. King entered the court on a feather-adorned litter, carried by four shirtless muscle men, reminiscent of the spectacle of Cleopatra. Riggs followed in a rickshaw drawn by a host of attractive models. Ninety million people worldwide tuned in to see who would win. Then the match began. Later, on an episode of Makers, The Women Who Made America, Billie Jean King said of her strategy, quote, My strategy was to hit the ball as softly as I could so he had to generate all the power. I drop-shotted it, I lobbed, I floated one, I went the net, and I was going to run him into the ground. End quote. The match lasted three sets, with Billie Jean King winning all three sets, 6-4, to 6-3, and 6-3. to three. Afterward, King stated, quote, I thought it would set us back 50 years if I didn't win that match. It would ruin the women's tennis tour and affect all women's self-esteem. To beat a 55-year-old guy was no thrill for me. The thrill was exposing a lot of new people to tennis, end quote. This victory, along with Title IX, is often credited with igniting a surge of women's participation in sports and, quote, empowering women to advocate for equal pay in all sectors of the workforce, end quote. But all this happened well after the last major event at the Idaho State Penitentiary in March 1973. The prison population, staff, and administration in 1973 were preoccupied with the transition over to the new site, quote, approximately eight miles south of the city of Boise, end quote. By this point, the maximum security prisoners were primarily at the new site, with the rest of the population waiting impatiently for their transfer to a much more updated facility. According to the 1973-1974 biennial report, the new institution had three main units, a reception, diagnostic center, the main institution, and facilities outside the complex to be used for agricultural, animal husbandry, and work school release programs. The Reception Diagnostic Center would include facilities for the mentally ill and, quote, seriously disturbed offender, end quote, and there would be separate quarters for maximum, close, and medium security inmates. With the anticipated move, the prison administration worked on expanding counseling services, upping the number of available counselors to six, with each counselor's caseload varying between 20 and 80 men each. 
They also hired a, quote, full-time Indian counselor, end quote, who Native American inmates had previously requested to handle the difficulties facing indigenous inmates. Prior to September 1973, however, there was no full-time psychiatrist available for inmates, leaving even the most difficult cases in the care of overworked counselors. After the hiring, however, it was, quote, a great aid, end quote, in helping, quote, disturbed clients, end quote. The Eagle Island Farm remained an important part of the penitentiary and remained so through its closure. The farm dormitory housed the trusty farm crews and those inmates serving 120-day terms awaiting their final sentencing. The prison administration planned to expand the farm, including new buildings and developing additional farmland. With this expansion, they hoped to upgrade the dairy to maximum efficiency, providing up-to-date vocational training in dairying, maximizing beef, dairy, and swine production, and providing an improved environment for inmate workers. The on-site slaughterhouse initiated an apprenticeship program in cooperation with the Amalgamated Meat Cutters Union in slaughtering and meat processing, and this initiation caused an expansion to include meat butchering for the Idaho State School and Hospital in Nampa. The slaughterhouse program had the lowest recidivism rate of any program to that date. The work-study release program proved one of the most popular and successful in terms of keeping down the recidivism rate. Since its inception in 1969, only 39 of the 491 participants had to be removed from the program for rule infractions. Quote, The objective of this program is to re-socialize the offender by developing constructive work habits and community exposure. End quote. Every morning, the participants were taken to school or their respective jobs, returning to the penitentiary in the evening. Any inmate on work release paid room and board, quote, returning monies to the state for the cost of incarceration, end quote. Overall, before taxes, inmates earned a combined $144,803.98 in wages or $117,456.30 after taxes. $687,590 in 2020. With an Average of $256.17, about $1,500 in 2020, per inmate, after room and board, support to dependents, and expenditures within the community. Like clothing and personal items. Many men also completed college degrees while incarcerated, with only 12 of the 36 participants removed for rule infractions. 120 inmates were involved in some kind of primary educational programming. The education department had an unstructured approach to learning, meaning inmates could advance at their own pace. The administration had recognized that close structuring caused many to withdraw from the programs. Because of the looser approach, quote, replaced by understanding and individual attention, end quote, led many to complete GED requirements in as little as two months. The teachers in this program included one full-time general studies teacher, four part-time teachers from Boise State University, and eight part-time teachers from the Boise School District. Within the prison, inmates could work at the sign department, the license department, and the furniture department. Anywhere between 23 and 60 inmates worked at these three departments. The 1973-74 biennium was the first time that the sign department would end the period with a profit. Sales in the license department, which made license plates, averaged about $25,000 each month making license plates and was expected to end the biennium with $30,000 in profits. There were four areas in which the inmates employed there could work. Plate cutting, painting and drying, embossing, and packaging and shipping. The furniture department, which comprised of wood and metalworking as well as an upholstery division, made new pieces and refurbished old furniture. 
The department sold nearly $300,000 in the biennium and would end with a profit of $30,000. With the move to the new site, the administration anticipated greater profits and a larger amount of inmates able to work in each department. The vocational program had been temporarily put on hold before the move to the new site. Soon after the move, however, the program was resumed and 42 men were receiving training in courses such as auto body painting, auto mechanics, landscaping, and TV repair. The prison recreation program had no full-time director in the biennium, but the program, led by a correctional officer, continued to provide sporting events and recreational releases. Hobbycrafts were one of the most popular activities for the inmates, and much of the art made in the institution was offered for sale in the offices of the volunteers in corrections. As part of the recreation and rehabilitation programs, the prison supported several different clubs geared toward minority inmates, including the Mexican-American Club, part of the Associated League of Mexican-Americans, and the North American Indian League. The prison also sponsored Alcoholics Anonymous, the Law Club, the Gavel Club, and the JCs. Once the population had been moved out to the new site, several new clubs had formed, including the Rodeo Club, who hoped to construct a rodeo arena within the new prison confines. The Biennial Report also stated, quote, The Brotherhood has interest in working with youthful offenders and disturbed youngsters, end quote. It is unclear what Brotherhood the Warden is referring to here. Articles in the Statesman refer to different Brotherhoods, such as the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and the Brotherhood of Railway and Airline Clerks, as well as the general, quote, Brotherhood of Men, end quote. I couldn't find anything discussing an organization simply called the Brotherhood, except for one website called EducateYourself.org, which calls the Brotherhood the elite organizations who manipulate American society for their own benefit. (laughs) I did learn then, however, that EducateYourself.org is a website of conspiracy theories, including one about, like, fairies um, and, like, the picture of historical fairies. So this is probably not the brotherhood that the warden is discussing. Yeah. Yeah. Wrong podcast, but... uh... Yeah. Sounds right. fascinating. <laughs> it was a... F- I mean, it was a fascinating website for sure. <laughs> The North American Indian League was a particularly important organization for the Native American inmates. NAIL was an incorporated organization to aid the rehabilitation of Native prison inmates. The Idaho chapter was founded by Melvin White Magpie. Number 12657, arrested in 1969 for vehicle theft and assault. A Sioux from Pine Ridge, South Dakota in 1970. Upon the founding of the Idaho chapter, members of NAIL included tribal members from the Nez Perce, Yakima, Arapaho, Bannock, Chippewa, and Apache. One member said, quote, From an early age, my parents taught me the ways of the old people and their customs. I grew up proud to live and hunt in the Rocky Mountains, to see them unspoiled, and to fish their fast waters. I grew up uncertain, sometimes confused. I read books in school that did nothing but teach history in favor of the white men. I laid away our stories and customs and became a smile and nod when someone said Indian. I failed the old people. I became a convict. Let us learn today before the world makes us forget. End quote. White Magpie hoped that working together in Nail would help Native American inmates learn new trades and better themselves, including through education and vocational training. The group also hoped to convince prison administrators to get more vocational training at the institution. 
The members also wanted to celebrate their native heritage, which they first did in 1972 with a powwow at the Idaho State Penitentiary, which included a large banquet and featured entertainment from the native dancers. Soon after their founding in 1969, the League created a dance club made up of minimum security inmates who were allowed to perform outside of the prison. The White Club was named after White Magpie, whose native name translated to Many Wars. Goals of the dance club were multiple, to promote better understanding, quote, not only between the Indian and non-Indian inmates, but also between people outside prison and those inside, end quote. The club appeared at several local public schools in the Boise area, the Idaho State School in Nampa, the Boise Children's Home, Elderly Rest Homes, and the Veterans Administration Hospital. They were well-received wherever they performed. Eddie James Jr., a member of the Nez Perce tribe from Lapway, said, quote, The Many Wars dancers are a group of people with big hearts. We perform not for compensation, but for the enjoyment and happiness we can bring to some man, woman, or child, handicapped from an accident or birth defect, or a veteran who has lost a limb protecting the country, end quote. When released, members of NAIL proved to be incredibly productive members of society, both for Native inmates and for non-Natives. Even though White Magpie was the founder, he was released on parole soon after the founding, but remained an important contact for the current incarcerated members. In 1972, NAIL chairman James J. Ellenwood Jr., a Nez Perce from Lapway, was working with personnel from his reservation in northern Idaho to set up a parole program for members of the tribe being released from prison. Another former inmate, Raymond Eagle, was active in rehabilitation work, serving as director of the Amatilla Indian Alcohol and Drug Program in Oregon. The organization also operated a, quote, mini halfway house, end quote, in Pendleton, Oregon, to help recently released inmates to adjust to life on the outside, as well as counseling to deal with potential drug problems. Nail was so integral to Native life both in and out of the penitentiary that it had chapters in Utah, Montana, Nevada, and Oregon. In 1968, Warden Raymond May approved the creation of the Associated League of Mexican Americans, or ALMA, to help with the particular issues that Chicano inmates faced. According to a Statesman article from September 10, 1972, quote, discrimination against Chicanos in Idaho, which until recent years led to some places of business featuring signs such as no Mexicans allowed, also exists in the Idaho State Penitentiary. Jesse Burain, deputy director of the Idaho Human Rights Commission, believed the prejudice was not imagined and that prison officials and educators at the prison all acknowledged the problem. From the Statesman article, quote, Consider the problems a Caucasian would have in a Mexican prison. Communications would be the primary difficulty. If the Mexican official spoke only Spanish, it would be difficult for the Caucasian to understand what was going on around him. Another problem involves cultural differences. In a Mexican prison, the Mexican culture would be literally forced upon the Caucasian and he would have to accept it or pay the consequences. This situation also exists for many Chicanos at the prison. Alma called for a caseworker to handle cases of Mexican-Americans or Latinx inmates, as well as allowing for an organization to help the administration understand the cultural differences that Mexican-American and Latinx inmates struggled against. According to the administration, however, budget issues kept the prison from hiring a caseworker for Alma members. This season of Behind Gray Walls, Disturbing Justice, as well as the Disturbing Justice exhibit were made possible by the Boise City Department of Arts and History and the National Endowment for the Humanities. We would like to thank them for their generous support. The uh, North American Indian Club, which was a uh, just a, a club formed of Native Americans. There was a, an Alma Club, they called it, ALMA, that was the American League of uh, Mexican Americans. Uh, 
I don't think we had any blacks on the yard at that point. I, I can't remember. There might have been, you know, like one or two, but they, you know, obviously they didn't have any any clubs going. They would have a basketball group. They'd have a weightlifting group. They'd have a boxing club. None of it was very well organized. It wasn't financed. It would just be a group of people that that were interested in the same thing, and they would go down, drink coffee, and talk about it. And that's about where it, where it ended. There, there just wasn't a lot of activities for them. But they had, they were given a place to meet. Pretty much, to get yeah. Together. Yeah, and I like I was showing you when we were walking around. There was a, uh, I believe it was in the nail club. I think was underneath the uh, kitchen, underneath the dining hall. You know, there'd be just a little cubby hole someplace that somebody wasn't using, and they'd throw a couple of couches in there, and that was their, there was their little meeting place. Yeah. Okay. Do you think those groups were helpful or harmful, or it didn't matter, or? It's kind of a neutral thing, you know. You you, you got to remember that when the, when you've got an idle inmate, it's like an idle kid. He's thinking about something to do, and that was one of the one of the problems we ran into. Is you had five or six guys that were sitting in a place, smoking a joke and a drinking coffee. Pretty quick, they'd hatched a plan in there to, to get under your skin some way or, or try to figure a way out, and. Uh, it was it was a much different atmosphere back in those days. You, you, you know, there was a stone wall around you. You know, I always got the feeling that they would, you know, as compared to today, yeah. as they wanted out a lot more. You know, it was, a, it was oh. a different type of individual than we're dealing with today. They were old convicts. Now we're dealing with inmates. You know, the kids are the, the ones we're dealing with on today's in today's day and age. They're uh, 18 to 25 years old. They don't have a lick of sense. As long as somebody's feeding them and entertaining them, they're going to stay right there. These old guys were just, uh, you know, they were, some of them could be about half bad. You know, hmm. They wanted out. Despite plentiful details in the newspaper about the different inmate clubs, the composition of inmates within the prison is less known. The 1973-1974 biennial report was the least detailed about inmates of all the biennial reports. There was only one main report detailing the inmates, and it was this map on the 44 counties of Idaho in which the top seven jurisdictions and the towns within those jurisdictions of arrests are listed. They are as follows. One, Kootenai County, Coeur d'Alene. Two, Nez Perce County, Lewiston. Three, Canyon County, Caldwell. Four, Ada County, Boise. Five, Twin Falls County, Twin Falls. Six, Bannock County, Pocatello. 7. Bonneville County, Idaho Falls. There are no precise numbers or statistics listed. It seems as if there may be some pages missing from our current copy of the biennial report, as the report includes a page entitled Explanation of Graphs, but no graphs can be found within the report. There's only one section that even remotely relates to criminal charges, listing the amount of inmates in for drug-related charges. 212 male and 20 female inmates were arrested for possession of LSD or marijuana, and 205 male and 8 female inmates were arrested for possession of LSD or marijuana with intent to deliver, as well as delivery or sale itself. 18 male and 4 female inmates arrested for possession of heroin, amphetamines, or barbiturates. According to a paragraph describing graph C, which is not found, Age breakdown by offenders by crime, quote, the graphs clearly indicate that youthful offenders under 25 years far outnumber the older offenders in certain crimes, such as burglary, larceny, and drug-related offenses, but in crimes such as driving while intoxicated, embezzlement, 
fraud, assault, sex offenses, etc., the numbers are fairly distributed throughout all ages, unquote. This, unfortunately, is all we know of the compositional makeup of the prison in the 1973-1974 biennium. As we mentioned earlier in this episode, the maximum security inmates were kept at the new site, as the maximum security facilities were much more modern than Five House at the older site. Two of the inmates who were kept in the maximum cells were number 12743 Larry Ramos Trujillo and number 13103 Fred Boyinger, who would both be catalysts in the riot in March 1973. Larry R. Trujillo was born in 1951 in Del Norte, Colorado, one of six siblings. He and his brothers and sisters were raised by their mother in Rupert, Idaho, where Larry dropped out of school in the ninth grade due to, quote, racial problems, end quote. In 1969, he was convicted of grand larceny and burglary in Minidoka County, but his sentence was suspended and he received probation. He violated that probation three times, only to have his probation reinstated three times. Finally, however, on January 12, 1970, he was charged with passing a forged instrument and received three years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. On January 4, 1973, Larry and Fred Boyinger were charged with assault with a deadly weapon with intent to commit murder for stabbing fellow inmate number 12433, Stanley Paul Smith. Larry and John allegedly stabbed Smith with a, quote, knife-like, end quote, instrument on each side of his ribcage. The attack took place in a fourth inmate cell and was purportedly over a drug dispute. They would not go to trial until after the riot. Fred Arlen Boyinger, Larry's literal partner in crime, was born on August 3, 1942, to Nellie and Arlen Boyinger. His parents were divorced before his 15th birthday and is unclear with whom Fred spent his time growing up. Perhaps because of what could possibly be termed an unstable childhood, Fred began getting in trouble at a young age, eventually spending time at the Idaho State Industrial School in St. Anthony. From the industrial school, when he was just 16 years old, he and a fellow student, Ronald Nesbitt, escaped from the school and stole a car in Cary, Idaho. As they drove west, with Fred driving, the car smashed into a concrete abutment of a bridge in Glens Ferry. Both youths were taken to a hospital in Boise to be treated for head injuries, where Ronald's condition was described in the newspaper as critical. Two years later, in 1960, he escaped yet again from the industrial school, again stealing a car. The newspaper incorrectly listed his age as 16. After his release from the industrial school, he was arrested for grand larceny. Through the 1960s, he was arrested several times for vagrancy and disorderly conduct, driving without a license, and driving under the influence before March 1971, when he was bound over to the court for charges of forgery and receiving stolen property. In May 1971, he was charged with fraudulent use of a credit card and obtaining money under false pretenses. He served three sentences concurrently, five years, six years, and ten years. In August 1971, Fred brought a suit against Ada County Sheriff Paul Bright, claiming that Fred was scheduled to appear after a writ of habeas corpus had been served, and Bright had, quote, maliciously, end quote, transported Boyinger to the Canyon County Sheriff, causing Fred to miss his hearing. He asked for $155,000 in damages. His case was dismissed in December 1971. Because of their assault charges, both Larry and Fred were kept in the maximum security building for about a week before the events of Wednesday, March 7, 1973. There is some dispute as to the exact happenings between guards and Larry at the new site. Between 2.30 and 4.30 p.m., Larry and the guards got into an altercation. Larry claimed that he was beaten by Lieutenant Larry Wright, Sergeant Hudlett and Officer Thomas Warwick. 
ramming his head against a steel bunk and breaking one of his knuckles in the process and resulting in a deep cut on his wrist. Larry said of the beating, quote, My hair, which is quite long, infuriates them, and they pull handfuls of it from my head, quote. Some reports charge that Larry and Fred purposely injured themselves after getting in the fight, that their wounds were self-inflicted simply to get out of Max. They claimed that uh, Lieutenant Wright and myself beat them, which was not true. They took uh, Fred uh, Boinger, took his denture, bottom denture out, which was a partial, and it had a little sharp hook on it. He cut himself with that to get medical attention. The inmates had gotten word back here that we'd that we had beaten him, which hadn't occurred. One of the inmates out there had flipped out and had put his hand when he was out walking on a tear through some glass and, you know, smashed his hand up pretty good and essentially hurt himself. And when they brought him in here to the hospital, you know, for treatment, the inmates got the word here. They got a rumor started that that uh, that we'd beat him up out there. And as I recall, they were Chicano inmates at the time. and. So all the inmates on the yard, some of the agitators and some of the heavies were trying to get the rest of people all stirred up, and they did. Prison administration stated that Trujillo had probably been beaten because he had assaulted guards, but the series of events was not yet clear. What is clear is that Larry was transported to the hospital at the old site as the hospital at the new site was not yet complete. Lieutenant Wright brought Larry down the deadline toward Five House, where it 10 to 15 other convicts, including Larry's brother John, watched through two large windows in Five House. In the hospital, an inmate medic took x-rays of Larry's hand and stitched up his cuts. While outside in the yard, two groups began to gather, one made up of Latino inmates near Four House and a, quote, larger mixed group, end quote, in front of Three House. At 7.15 p.m., Officer Anderson told everyone to return to their cells or the recreation area, but inmates ignored his orders. Once his treatment was completed, Larry refused to return to the new site. As officers tried to remove him, about 40 inmates rallied around Larry, denying officials' attempts to remove him. As the groups gathered, Security Superintendent C.W. Crowell, quote, proceeded immediately to talk to the inmate council at their request, end quote. The inmate council included John Trujillo. The council, quote, demanded that Trujillo stay at the century-old Greystone prison site on Warm Springs Avenue, and after much discussion and attempts to work out the solution, it appeared stalemated, end quote. The inmate council, along with C.W. Crowell, then met with Larry in the hospital. The inmate council came out of the meeting insisting that Larry be kept in the hospital, while Crowell came out saying, quote, Larry goes back to Max for now, end quote. After Crowell's statement, some of the inmate council left to meet with Warden Raven May. Others joined the crowds that gathered in the yard. Crowell got in a heated discussion with a group of inmates, and soon the crowd began to close in around him. As John Trujillo left to meet with May, Crowell said to him, quote, Tell them to be cool. Don't start anything, end quote. None knew at that time that Warden May and the inmate council were meeting together, and May agreed that Larry could stay. Around that same time, inmates barred the guards from entering the gate, saying, quote, You will take Larry back to the hospital now. You will not take him to Max. Your regime is no longer in control here, end quote. Within minutes, the fire started. I don't remember exactly how long. I remember it was very warm up there in the tower that night. <laughs> we didn't have to and you were in the fourth building. tower, you said? I was up there watching. And in fact, the inmate that started the fire uh, in the kitchen, I could see his hand through the window. It was dark at night, but I could see his hand. It was his left hand. He had a piece of paper that was on fire, and I could see him hold it out and drop it. Uh, so I had a first-hand view of it. 
when it started. Could you recognize him? No, all I could see was a hand yeah. and paper with fire. So I had no idea who it was. I could have legally shot at him, but I figured he's going to have to live with the situation anyway, so... Between 7.30 and 8 p.m., a group of, quote, unstable, end quote, inmates, according to a member of the prison staff, set fire to the dining hall, and a fire was soon burning in the chapel. The first I knew that a riot was occurring, I lived in a mobile home park just below the prison here, and they called me up and said they needed some help, they had some problems, and I, and I said, well, I'll be up as soon as I can, and I just happened to pull the curtain of the trailer back and looked up that way, and I could see flames shooting, you know, anywhere from 50 to 100 feet above the wall, up here, and I thought, yeah, I guess they have some problems. So, <laughs> Inmates, who genuinely loved the chapel, as it had beautiful art painted by an inmate, and the chapel served a multitude of functions, even outside of religion. They could meet, put on plays or concerts there, or even have people from the community entertain them in the chapel. They did have the wherewithal to save the prison piano from the fire, which you can now see in the auditorium at our current historical site. Worried about the fire spreading to the cell houses, officials let the inmates out of their cells and were able to contain most of the population in a corner near Five House. A fire was also set in what we currently call Two House, but what they called Three House at the time, which then served as a lieutenant's office as well as in the shirt factory. Only one cell was set on fire, and the fire was easily contained. In the chaos that the fires caused, some inmates broke into the canteen, a central space in two of our previous riots, though no damage was caused in the building. Five fire trucks from the Boise Fire Department were immediately dispatched as inmates began shouting at prison officials and newspapermen gathered on the wall. Idaho Daily Statesman staff writer Jerry Gilliland said, quote, Daily Statesman photographer David Frazier and I were standing on the prison wall above the inner courtyard. We shouted down our questions to the inmates and they answered. From time to time, an unpopular administration official would walk by on the wall and the inmates would turn their shouts on him. Ask that f- he's one of them that caused all this. They yelled as one prison official walked by. Another official was writing in a notebook until the inmates began shouting that he was writing down the names of the inmates talking to the newspaper men, end quote. The prison yard glowed red with fire, the flames, quote, visible for miles that leaped high into the night sky, end quote. Law enforcement officers were stationed about every 15 feet along the wall with sawed-off shotguns in their hands. As firefighters appeared on the walls, one inmate shouted, quote, Let it burn! It's 100 years old already! We're going to move out of here soon! Inmates continued to berate and castigate the new prison officials they called, quote, young punks, end quote, who, quote, needle us and then laugh at us among themselves. And there's some old guys who like to do the same thing. Don't get me wrong, there's some good guys who work here. But if you get a man who cares, who comes to work here and is a decent sort of guy, then the others gang up on him and get rid of him, end quote. Another shouted up to Gilliland, quote, You're paying for something you're not getting. It's nothing but a f***ing con game. If we were being treated like human beings, do you think we'd be acting like this tonight? End quote. The fire trucks soon had the fires under control by 10 p.m., and the first fire truck returned to the station at 10.13 p.m. The inmates were mostly controlled by them as well, having been herded near Five House. I went running up here, and somebody, I remember we came upstairs here to the old uh, uh, parole commission room, and somebody handed me a helmet and a riot stick, and and said, come on, we're going in the yard and get this thing back under control. And I can remember running down the stairs here thinking, this is really stupid. I could get killed out here, you know. Because mm-hmm. they had a whole bunch of folks out there, and there were only 15 of us that went in the yard with these, you know, with the, the long riot nightsticks and, and axe handles. And, uh, they sent you into the middle of it? Oh, yes. In fact, we got 
right down here, after we cleared the yard, we kind of pushed all the inmates down against the west wall here and, and, and by Five House, and we were standing in front of them. And at one point, uh, the inmates started yelling, well, let's rush them. There are only 15 of them, you know. And, and I thought, this could, this could get to be interesting, you know. And, but I looked up on the wall, you know, on the catwalk walking down here, they had the, you know, they had the, uh, the city police and the county police and the state police and, and, and correctional officers all shoulder to shoulder all the way down this wall. And they all had shotguns and rifles and pistols and semi-automatic weapons. And, and when they started yelling that they were going to rush us, I could hear everybody up on the wall, you know, cocking their weapons and stuff, and, and, le and I looked up and they were all leaning over, and, and then at that point in time I got to be more afraid of the people on the wall than I was the inmates who were in front of me. I thought if they rush us and one guy shoots, they're all going to start shooting and they're going to get us right along with the inmates. At that point in time we, we got a little, uh, got a little uh, nerve-wracking. But they didn't. We held our ground and I think that's what kept from rushing us. We just, we just stood there. You know, they started at us once and then they backed up. And we just pulled small groups at a time and, and strip searched them and run them back into the cell houses and locked them up. Officers began moving the inmates to the cell blocks in small groups of between 6 and 10. They were first stripped of their clothing and any contraband was thrown in a large trash can. And we got in there and uh, just got them pushed up against the wall there and then we could take them out one at a time. And uh, there were two or three guys would go get one man. We take him out, strip him out, see what uh, see what he's carrying. Okay. And uh, just put him away. Um, Most of them were ready, ready to go. I mean, they they had had enough of it already, uh, and a lot of them just are there because they don't want to be. Uh, Singled out as not participating. Yeah. I mean, this here's a, it's a group group thing. I mean, they either all do it or they don't. The people that don't want anything to do with it, well, sometimes they get caught up in the passion of it anyway. About 30 or so inmates had been working out in two yards, said Bill Evans, associate superintendent of operations. Quote, I imagine... They've bedded down for the night, end quote. As the inmates were moved into cell blocks, Larry Trujillo was moved back to the new site. It was later realized that there was evidence that neither Larry nor Fred had committed the assault for which they were blamed, and because of which this whole riot was started. At 11.45 p.m., Warden May told reporters that there were eight prisoners he recognized as leaders of the disturbance who would be taken to maximum security in the new site pending investigation. Number 12719, Tom Ballou. Illegal possession of a controlled substance. Number 13480, Ralph Crawford. Number 12386, David Shannon. Bob Andre and Jimmy Berman, among about 20 or 30 other general agitators. He further stated that the inmate council had, quote, lost control, end quote, and would not be part of the investigation. There were no further reports of any disturbance that night, May describing the prison as, quote, quiet and calm, end quote, shortly before midnight. Once the smoke literally cleared, the dining hall and chapel had been burned down almost completely, only their walls still standing. The fires in two house, the lieutenant's office, the tailor shop, and the laundry, all in the shirt factory, had sustained damage but remained standing. The damage in two house can still be seen today. Captain Larry Broadbent, Ada County Sheriff's Chief of Detectives, said he believed there had been, quote, some tension unrelated to the stabbing, end quote, 
But the incident involving Trujillo was, quote, the straw that broke the camel's back, end quote. Damage was estimated at $100,000. Quote, what frosts me, one police officer standing on the wall said, is that I, as a taxpayer, am going to have to pay for it, end quote. However, no shots had been fired and tear gas had not been used. The only reported injuries were a twisted leg by a fireman and a cut hand by a Boise policeman. There was a fire on the north side. The uh, fire department had arrived and were trying to put out the fire. Uh, the uh, ladder, however, they had a bucket on the end with a uh, hose and it was supposed to point down, but it kept shooting up into the air. So the fireman went up the ladder to adjust it and see if he could get it to point down and lock it in position. On his way up the ladder, however, another member of the fire department went to adjust the ladder. I don't know if it was his senior or what, but uh, as, he, as the ladder started to move, the other uh, fireman caught his leg in the ladder and it wound up breaking his leg. So they had to haul him down and out of there for first aid. As their dining hall had been burned down, prisoners were fed their meals in their cells from National Guard field mess equipment. Captain Broadbent began investigations, sifting through 50 to 60 reports, quote, assigning as many men to the investigation as possible, end quote. Boise Police Detective Ed Brake said that about 25 weapons, mostly sharpened pool cues, had been found and confiscated from inmates before they returned to their cells on the first night. Warden May said, quote, it is gratifying for me to say that no injuries were sustained to inmates and personnel, end quote. Ada County Sheriff E.C. Palmer complimented prison staff, especially Lieutenant Joseph Munch, for their work in quelling the disturbance. Said Palmer, quote, There was good cooperation between all agencies. Prisoners were not able to turn one agency against another. We worked as a team, and this possibly was why there were no more flare-up than there was, end quote. On Friday, March 9th, about 50 inmates volunteered to clean up debris, trying to clean out an area large enough in the recreation room to eat in. Officials predicted that the institution would be, quote, back to normal in four or five days, end quote. Despite the praise, however, Broadbent said at a news conference the night after the riot that he did not see that the destruction of the facilities at the old site would speed up moving the inmates to the new site. Idaho Governor Cecil D. Andrews agreed it would be a mistake to begin any new construction at the old site, hoping that the final move could come, quote, before the winter of 1973, end quote. He added that he had already requested a boost in construction money for the new prison site in January of that year. As of the riot, the fencing needed completion, gates needed to be installed, towers and communication networks were missing, and the main kitchen was not ready for use. An Idaho Daily Statesman article from March 10th stated that the riot made several points about the contrast between the old site and the new site were clear. Quote, one is that the completion of the new prison has dragged on for too long. Concurrent use of part of the new prison facilities, along with the old prison, is not a wholly satisfactory arrangement. The sooner the move is made to the new prison, the better. Another is that the Ada County Sheriff's Office and penitentiary officials cooperated extremely well in handling the situation. That may have helped limit the violent acts to a minority of the prison population. One of the questions that arises is the failure of the inmate council to cool the situation and keep order. Or were there simmering complaints that helped the pot to boil over? If so, do they have any substance? Moving to the new penitentiary would not solve all the problems by any means, but it would help. End quote. On March 11th, Lieutenant Joseph Munch, chief correctional supervisor, sent a letter to the editor of the Idaho Daily Statesman. Quote, I wish to express openly my sincere thanks for the exceptionally fine cooperation of the Idaho State Police 
Ada County Sheriff Department, Boise City Police, and local firemen who supported our correctional officers during the prison disturbance Wednesday evening. It soon became very apparent that our local law enforcement agencies are well-trained and disciplined. There was little confusion, and direct lines of authority were established and followed with little problem. At a complex time in our society, it is gratifying to know our local law enforcement agencies can work well together and protect lives and property. It is a compliment to the people of Ada County and Idaho that they have the law enforcement leaders and men they do. We would like to express a special thanks to the Salvation Army for their food, coffee, and support, and their readiness to respond in an emergency situation. Even with all this adulation, concerns over treatment of inmates, especially minority inmates, came into question. On March 11th, the Idaho Human Rights Commission had begun an investigation about, quote, racial tension, end quote, at the new Idaho Penitentiary site, as a complaint had been received on Monday, March 5th, two days before the riot began. A member of the commission, Glenn Selander, said, quote, The inmate who filed the complaint complained that there were some racial tensions going on at the new site. It didn't have anything to do with the new site, end quote. Prison officials believe that Larry Trujillo injured his own hand to return to the old site to say he was hurt by prison staff, quote, thereby winning support from about 40 other inmates identified as predominantly Chicano, end quote. Inmates during the middle of the riot chanted for intervention by the Idaho Human Rights Commission. The very same day, another Daily Statesman article appeared in the newspaper titled, Angry Inmates' Wives Threatened to Demonstrate for Privileges. Quote, Angry women, wives and girlfriends of inmates at Idaho State Penitentiary, Saturday promised to show up in force at the institution on Warm Springs Avenue on Monday night if conditions for families of prisoners are not improved. Women who made their grievances known in exchange for anonymity said they were also concerned because they did not feel adequate knowledge had come to them about their men. We intend to get our men out of that new prison where they were supposed to go three years ago, said a wife. I think it's about time these men do not have to drink rusted water. May replied, we are all looking forward to abandoning this old facility, but it's humanly impossible to build something overnight. We cannot jump from one bad situation to another, end quote. May later said the target move date was mid-1974, but it was possible that the move date could be earlier. On March 13th, a Daily Statesman article stated that, quote, a good portion, end quote, of the cleanup of the riot had been completed, but would not be completed for several days as the administration was, quote, waiting for some return on the insurance adjustment, end quote. The prison was, quote, fully covered, end quote, against loss by fire. Warden May hoped for reinstitution of regular visiting hours starting Wednesday, March 14th. On March 14th, the Idaho Daily Statesman learned that soon after the riot, May, quote, unofficially is asking for an additional emergency grant for the Idaho State Penitentiary, end quote. This figure was requested in a letter from May to Robert Lennigan, Idaho Director of Administration Services. The letter said, quote, as a round figure, we are inclined to believe we will need about $20,000. We have been in contact with the insurance adjuster and will proceed as rapidly as possible in obtaining cash settlement, end quote. Representative William Roberts, co-chairman of the Joint Finance Appropriations Committee, reinterpreted the request as unofficial, saying, quote, he is not asking for additional money here or anything like that. He just mentioned that they will exceed an already tight budget by about $20,000, end quote. When asked if an emergency appropriation would be granted through the Joint Finance Appropriations Committee or through an emergency fund administrated by Governor Cecil D. Andrus, Lennigan said, quote, we have no way of telling, end quote, stating that the decision would be May's, while May said the decision was Lennigan's. May justified his request saying, quote, I don't think we'll get the full $100,000, end quote, but that the $20,000 requested was just a ballpark figure. 
Some of the money would go toward paying the overtime of the employees who had been there during the riot, while some would go to equipment which could be moved to the new site. And as if the prison did not have enough trouble, at 9.15 a.m. on Tuesday, March 27th, less than three weeks after the riot, quote, smoke poured from a third-floor cell at the Idaho State Prison, end quote. Thankfully, however, the fire was contained to one cell in three house and, quote, bore few of the earmarks of the penitentiary's Ash Wednesday fire, end quote. The cell was a single cell holding number 12803 Gary Chateau, who was serving a five-year forgery charge. Both those individuals were involved in the light bulb, no, the stabbing of inmate Smith over in Three House. They were also involved in the uh, bombing through filling up an electric bulb with some type of flammable material inserted in the light fixture in the ceiling of Chateau, Gary Chateau. When he screwed it in, it would blow up, except it blew up without Gary Chateau being in there. And also there was a device in the commode in Three House that blew up on the county Chateau was going to testify for the Smith who was stabbed by either Larry Trujillo or Fred Boinger. We believed it was Larry Trujillo, but they were both involved in it. And that's why they were out at maximum security of Unit 7. Firemen responded quickly and prevented any further spread, though there was smoke and water damage to adjacent cells. The 55 inmates who occupied 3 House, who had not reacted to the fire in any way, were moved to 4 House. Nothing more came from this fire. By the end of March and into April, Ada County Sheriff E.C. Chuck Palmer stated that the investigation into the causes of the fire during the riot failed to turn up enough evidence to prosecute any inmates for arson. The investigation further refuted the allegations of Larry Trujillo and Fred Boyinger that they had been beaten by correctional officers. Quote, we found no mistreatment of any inmates. We have a signed statement from both of them that their wounds were self-inflicted. It was a device to get out of Max. End quote. Overall, the investigation turned up the names of about 30 persons guilty of various misdemeanors, including vandalism, petty theft, and obscene conduct. However, they decided not to prosecute any of them, though their names could be turned over to Warden May for administrative action. Quote, The prosecutor agrees with me that it would be senseless to charge them with misdemeanors when they are already behind the walls for felonies, Palmer said. After all, what more could we do to them? End quote. Even the ones that instigated at that time, I mean, they weren't treated unfairly even after it happened i mean they still got to eat we didn't uh pound on their cells to keep them awake or anything uh, no they were they were being duly punished it's just up to us to be professional enough to take all that in stride on march 31st larry trujillo wrote an article for the saturday edition of the intermountain observer a boise weekly newspaper Unfortunately, no online archives exist for the Intermountain Observer, which published its last edition October 20th, 1973, so we do not know the details of Larry's article. The Statesman, however, synthesized the article, publishing portions of Larry's words, giving us a clear picture of what happened on March 7th. Larry admitted that the wounds on his arm, which brought him to the old site, were self-inflicted, that he and Fred Boyinger purposefully hurt themselves to get out of maximum security. He had supposedly told prison officials a few weeks before that he and Fred swallowed razor blades for the same reason, but nothing ever came of this complaint. 
After hurting themselves, guards told Larry that he would be taken for medical treatment, but after Fred said he refused to be treated by a medical technician, Larry said the same thing, wanting only a doctor to look after them. After this demand, Larry stated that one of the three guards then challenged him to, quote, the worst beating you've ever had in your life, end quote. Despite denial from all prison officials, including Warden May of wrongdoing, Larry claimed the guard punched, kneed, and twisted Larry's arms until he was handcuffed and chained. It was after this claim that the Idaho Human Rights Commission began their investigation into claims of racial discrimination in the prison. Fred Grant, commission director, said that the commission received a petition from 92 inmates in February urging an investigation. Though the article stated that the Human Rights Commission would have a ruling by May, there were no articles in the Statesman archives to determine what that ruling was. Nine months after the riot, on December 3, 1973, inmates were moved to the new $14 million prison site past Gowan Airfield. With the help of a convoy of 12 personnel carriers from the National Guard, 230 men were transferred to what was sometimes facetiously referred to as the, quote, Gowan Hilton, end quote. Those 230 inmates would join the 134 inmates who had already been transferred. One carrier was empty in case something happened to one of the full ones, and the National Guard also supplied a helicopter to provide aerial surveillance as the convoy moved. After 101 years, 1872 to 1973, the Idaho State Penitentiary just off of Warren Springs Avenue would never again hold a criminal behind its gray walls. John Corlett, statesman staff writer, wrote, quote, As the old penitentiary emptied itself of humanity, it took on an even greater foreboding look. The feeling of despair lingered in the empty yard, end quote. As the inmates were successfully transferred, Warden Raymond May said, quote, This is an end of an era, end quote. It indeed was. Governor Cecil D. Andrus said he had not yet reached a conclusion on what should be done with the old penitentiary, which the Board of Corrections would maintain until it was declared surplus. There was a proposal to sell the old prison and grounds with funds going to a permanent building fund for capital construction elsewhere. The Idaho State Historical Society and Idaho Parks and Recreation Board further proposed that the old prison should be converted to a park and tourist attraction, complete with shops and restaurants. Andrus said, quote, The proposal by the Idaho Historical Society makes a great deal of sense, end quote. When asked what he thought about the idea of turning the warden's house into the governor's mansion, Andrus replied, quote, You'll have to discuss that with my wife, end quote. <laughs> Within the year, Senator James A. McClure announced that the National Endowment for the Arts awarded the Idaho State Historical Society $49,864 to convert the Idaho Territorial and State Penitentiary into a cultural and commercial complex for the city of Boise. As we know, it remains a cultural site, with the pursuit of commercial interests having been dropped somewhere along the way. I think we could still get a Jamba Juice in here. (laughs) Let's do it! (laughs) On August 30th, 1973, Larry Trujillo was acquitted of the stabbing of Stanley Paul Smith, and he was released to return to his home and family in Rupert, Idaho, as his last sentence concluded two days after the trial. On September 19th, Statesman staff writer Annette Jenkins interviewed Larry asking about his life in prison. Looking back on the previous eight months, he admitted that he and Fred Boyinger had had beaten Smith over a confrontation over drugs, leaving him badly beaten, but not stabbed. Quote, Trujillo said one of two inmates witnessed the actual stabbing, but are serving lengthy sentences and refused to divulge the name in court, fearing retaliation from the man or his friends. The man who apparently committed the stabbing was, ironically, released two weeks before trial, end quote. 
While kept in maximum security, Larry Red works by political radicals like Angela Davis and Che Guevara, and he soon began writing things of his own, describing himself as, quote, more politically educated, end quote. He said officials did not like what he was writing, however, as two different times they pulled Larry out of his cell, hosed down his cell, and destroyed all his papers. Now that he was out of prison and in Rupert, he was working part-time as a truck driver for one of his brothers. The article ended saying, quote, he is not sure what he wants to do with his life, end quote. Within three months, in January 1973, Larry was convicted of second-degree burglary in Yakima, Washington, scheduled for a tentative release three years later in January 1976. However, on Sunday, August 11, 1974, officials at the Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla found Larry Trujillo dead, having committed suicide by hanging. His friend, Fred Boyinger, with whom he'd been through so much, had been paroled to his home in Boise on March 14, 1974. Nine months later, on December 4, 1974, his body was discovered in an open grassy area on Shaw Mountain Road, a quarter mile outside of Boise. He had been shot with a 45 caliber bullet. Renda Barbara Lytle and former Idaho State Penitentiary inmates Valdemar Gomez and Ray Allen Wood were charged with his murder. After all the excitement and tragedy in Larry Trujillo's life, I want to close it out with this letter to the editor he wrote on March 2, 1973, only five days before the riot. Quote, I would like to have my two cents worth printed on the problems that have arisen concerning convicts. I would like to say this. I'm not qualified to say how much time a person should do in prison, so I won't take either side. What I have heard and read and believe is that society is being brainwashed to believe that all persons in prison are some kind of animal or psychopath. I am at present a convict at the Idaho State Penitentiary, and I sure could do without all the brainwashing and also the publicity. I have acquired another criminal charge here in an alleged stabbing. Keep in mind that members of society are going to be picked up to serve as jurors in my trial. Whether I be guilty or innocent of the pending charge against me would hardly make a difference to the persons with my future in their hands if they have been led to believe that I am a sick animal just because I am presently a prisoner for being caught. My reason for wanting to have this printed is to discourage persons who are not qualified to class human beings in certain categories, not to make their opinions public, as they would interfere with a person's right of pursuit of happiness. We don't all love being in prison. <laughs> I've already got one thing going strong against me. I'm a Chicano in Idaho, so give me a break. End quote. So, what do we learn from the 1973 riot? First, arson is never the answer. Even if you intend to burn down just one building, as we have learned from summers between 1910 and 2020, fires are uncontrollable, and you may lose a building you never wanted to lose in the first place. In 73 when they had the riot and talking to some of the inmates that had gotten out we asked them about the chapel and they said they never intentionally set the chapel on fire it was the heat from the kitchen and the, em the ash embers that caught it because they didn't want to destroy the work inside and a lot of the old timers felt a great loss because they used to come in here as myself, when we, when we were allowed, and just sit here for hours and just look at the paintings. Oh, that chapel. Second, collective action is incredibly effective for both good and bad. 
When people work together, things get done. This is something that we need to keep in mind after this election. Only by working together will we truly be able to fix what we have deemed broken in our society. In March 1973, I'm sure that the prison officials would have preferred that collective action had not been so effective. Lastly, injuring yourself to prove a particular point will never end up the way that you think. Even if inmates like Larry Trujillo and Fred Boyinger thought that they would be able to effect change at the old site by injuring themselves, and even if their intent was to start a large-scale riot, the rest of the fellow inmates suffered without a dining hall and recreation building for about nine months because of their choices. Keep that in mind next time you think about creating a big disturbance. And finally, what do we learn from this riot season? I think we learned a lot, especially about the history of the prison and U.S. history, the broader context of prison conditions and cooperation between inmates and prison officials. We learned about the food fights, the escape attempts, and the property destruction that made the prison site what you visit today. We learned about the tragedies, the communications, and the compromises made. We learned about the intense violence within the prison and the acts of solidarity as well as division between the inmates. Perhaps most importantly, we learned that where humans are involved, no institution will ever operate exactly as it should. So, Anthony, what sort of of all the episodes we've done and all the research that you did for the exhibit, what episode or what riot, and I don't want to say, like, when I say favorite, obviously I don't mean which one did you think was the coolest, but like which sort of did you enjoy learning about the most? I really liked the 66 sit-in. I just liked that this connection between the civil rights movement, what's going on outside the walls and what was happening inside the walls, that it was kind of this great little reflective mirror of peaceful protests that was going on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I like that no one really got hurt in it and nothing really got mm -hmm. damaged too much in it. How about you? The one that I think is sort of the most unique and sort of like almost least explainable is the the 35 food fight, you know, riot. Um, that there was really so little to explain it. But, you know, if sort of officials had not been ready to react, like what would have happened? And so I find that one really interesting. But I, I also found it these last two really interesting as well, because we are moving into a period of time that is so fraught with, you know, sort of social tension and social justice. And, yeah. you know, eventually in the in the 80s, which we don't see, we don't talk about because that's, you know, after our site has closed down. But, you know, in the 80s, we start to see a, basically a, a large scale prison reform movement going on. And so um, really interesting to see the development of uh, the riots uh, in the 70s as well. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, uh, this this weekend, this Saturday, Stool Pigeon Saturday, I uh, was fortunate to interview another correctional officer, and he was actually held hostage in the 1980 riot that occurred at the current institution. So tune in for that if you're interested in hearing something that occurred at the current institution. It was a, it was a major riot, and, you know, hear it from the words of the man who was right there with these, these prison leaders, these heavies that were holding him hostage. It's so fascinating. Wow. And I, I mean, I don't know about you, Anthony, and I, I have enjoyed this season, but I am ready to get back to to our old format. Yeah, absolutely. You've done and, such a good you know, job writing these episodes. Oh. oh, my gosh. 
Well, thank you, thank you. I just I miss my ladies. Yeah, yeah. We gotta get the we gotta get the ladies back in here. We as, do. Uh, I miss you know, them too. We gotta, as Abigail Adams said, we gotta remember the ladies. <laughs> but so good. well, I, I mean, I hope that that everyone enjoyed listening to this very sort of special um, and unique season as much as we enjoyed researching it, writing it, and recording it. And we hope that you learned something that you didn't know before. I certainly know that I did, and I'm sure Anthony um, can say the same. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and we hope that next time you're at the old Idaho Penitentiary, you will check out our disturbing justice exhibit, which I will be checking out for the first time um, in hopefully the next couple weeks. Yeah, and I'm thrilled to be able to do that. So, thank you guys for sticking with us. Yeah, thank you everybody for listening, and yeah, we really appreciate all of you listeners and. I love hearing from you. So if you had parts of this season that you loved, that you hated, we want to know about it. All right, everybody. Do your own time. Do your own number. We'll see you all soon. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe so others can find our podcast. If you're interested in more Old Idaho Penitentiary information and to see the mugshots of the inmates featured in this episode, follow the Old Idaho Penitentiary on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to learn more about the Idaho State Historical Society and its other sites, follow ID State Historical Society on Instagram or visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for the hosts, which we love to get, please email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com. Hello, Mr. Perry. I received a phone call. This is Calvin May. And indeed, I was part of the 1980 riot. And as you can imagine, it's been a major part of my life ever since. And I'm happy to discuss the riot with you and happy to participate in your upcoming programs. You can call me back uh, anytime. And I look forward to talking with you. Have a good day. Bye.